First Corinthians chapter 15. I didn't finish editing this rough sanding and fine-tuned sanding until about 6.10. So you've got to breathe a little. A couple moments. Silent preparation. Glad you got here and you're dry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the magnificent assurance, the certitude that you've placed in our souls about the events that have happened in history with your son, Jesus Christ, and his redemption, and about events that are about to unfold in prophecy, the farthest reaching of which is that which we have been studying now, when you will become all and in all. We anticipate this day. We anticipate that time with great anticipation, and it motivates us highly to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and be under his reign and to be grasped by him in life more and more. So may our Lord Jesus Christ get more of a grasp on us through what we receive and what we grasp of your word tonight. We ask in his name. Amen. Before we get started, I put together a uh, partial bibliography for Better Call Paul. Partial bibliography, Better Call Paul, if you want it. It's out there. It's already being printed. I just handed it over 10 minutes ago. And they are the books that I've... I haven't read all these books in, in their entirety. Many of them I have. But they're books that I've consulted in the Better Call... Paul's series so far, a few of them. This is a partial biography, bibliography rather. So if you want to take advantage of it, the the last one I entered was a book that I've just begun. I'm quite enthused about it, and I haven't, but I haven't read the whole thing yet. It's by Fleming Rutledge. It's called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. It's an Erdman's publication from 2015. And Ms. Fleming is a remarkable theologian. She also calls in a lot of the theologians that we know in a sympathetic way, Moltmann, Barth, and even J. Lewis Martin, with whom I think she was an acquaintance. So tonight I want to consider the topic that I just barely suggested or gestured toward last night. It's ecclesiology for the 21st century. That's going to emerge in the study. Ecclesiology is a category under theology. There are many categories, the most notable being Christology, which is our study of Jesus Christ. Ecclesiology, of course, comes from Ecclesia, or Ecclesia, the called out ones, which means the church, the study of the church. And I'm going to show you tonight that the most essential feature of ecclesiology for, the, for a systematic theology in the 21st century is what I want to talk about tonight. It's something very important about the church that I've never read or heard of or been taught in all my previous years as a student of theology, and I hope that it will be grasped. So I'm going to call tonight's message Ecclesiology for the 21st Century. That's not all I'm going to talk about, but it's the central piece of what I'm going to talk about tonight. 
1 Corinthians 15, 28, where we left off last night, we came up with this translation. Now when everything, and that's everything because the only being that's excluded from everything is the Father, as we learn. Now in everything, that's Paul's oft-used word, the articular word with an article, tapanta. It's everything without exception. This encompasses what Lonergan, Bernard J.F. Lonergan, called the universe of proportionate being. The universe of proportionate being, which I would call all of created reality. So, well, now when everything, that's all beings in creation, is subject to him, then at that time, the Son himself will also be subject to him who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. That phrase is a remarkable one in Paul. This phrase reaches out farther into the future, into the eschatological future than any other passage in Paul. And it looks again like this, the ta which is in some translations and some not, but then we have ta, panta, or panta, and then n-e-n, pasin, p-a-s-i-n, two words for all. Ta, panta, n, pasin. God will be all in all. We studied just a little bit last night another parallel to the language here in 1 Corinthians 15:28 is the Greek employed by Paul in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. Some people call Ephesians and Colossians the Deuteropauline epistles because they don't believe Paul wrote them. They believe a student of Paul wrote them. In my view, after studying Framing Paul by Douglas Campbell, Paul did in fact write Ephesians and Colossians. That he wrote them both from a prison in Apatea in Turkey. And these were both written to assemblies that he did not found, but they were founded by others, Ephesians and Colossians. Paul uses the same similar phraseology in Colossians 3.11. Speaking of the new humanity, which is the church, which is the proleptic new creation. If any person is in Christ, there's the new creation. All the persons who are in Christ at the present time are called the church, the ecclesia, the messianic community. But they are a provisional community and a proleptic community, which means they are simply a preview of a universal human community that is going to come about or be fully realized in the eschaton, in the final day which is what this is talking about. So speaking of this new humanity, Paul says, quote, in which there is no Greek and Jew. He's talking about our own type of culture in which we label people, and sometimes with a disparaging label, like, oh, the Greek over there, or the Jew, or the slave, or the freeman. The slave might have resentment and resentment toward the free person. Or the barbarian, as it says here. Or the Scythian, 
that by national ethnicity, the Scythians were apparently quite a savage people in their history. But Paul uses these words to say there is no more of that, no more labels. And I like to think of it as the bath of regeneration washes away all the labels. So Paul says again, in which there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian. In Romans 1.14, Paul says he is indebted to all men, including barbarians, Gentiles, pagans, and Jews. He's indebted to them all to bring them the gospel, the unchained gospel, which we're studying now. So, in which there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free person, etc. Paul leaves it open that there can be a whole bunch of other labels. You can add your own. You know how many there are in our time. But he says, but instead, Christ is all and in all. And he has tapanta. And then he has the word conjunction chi added in there, but that's the only difference, chi. Tapanta, chi, and pasen. Almost exactly the same language, but then he adds Christos. Christos. Tapanta and pasen, Christos. All in all, Christ. Christ is all. He encompasses we could even say he comprises the church, the new humanity. He comprises it. It is Christ. And he's in all. He is in all in this thing we call the church, which Paul called the body of Christ, recognizing that this assembly, the worldwide community of believers who have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, is an organism, not just an organization. So he uses the same phrase. Now, this is important to me because the church is a prolepsis. It's a preview of what's going to be universally a reality. And that means that as Christ is, comprises the church and is in all the church, when he submits himself to the Father... He will submit himself along with all of creation that he will have embodied through redemption so that God the Father will be all in all because as Colossians 1.19 says, the fullness of divinity, the triune God, the fullness of divinity was pleased to dwell in him. And then it says in Colossians 2.9 that by the incarnation, Jesus Christ is and still is by Incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. Jesus Christ still is the fullness of divinity, bodily speaking, corporeally, somatikos, in a bodily way. He's the fullness of divinity. And so if God the Father was pleased and is pleased to dwell in his Son, then the, the logic of this Christology is that the Father will be delighted to reside in the Son when the Son resides in everything. So the Father will reside in everything. He will be in all. There will be a glory throughout all of creation. It will be the Father's glory. It will be 
this glorious transformation, a transfiguration. In that transfiguration, evildoers will be radically transformed from evil into the supreme good. Paul is an example of that. Saul of Tarsus, the chief of sinners, is a preview of that. He is a kind of a specimen of the eschatological person. He is one of the best specimens of God's favorite thing to do, which is to justify the ungodly. I love that. Romans 4, 5. So, in this present evil age, which is also a messianic eon, we have, if you want to describe the time we live in, it's kind of a strange thing, day to be living. Strange days Indeed, as John Lennon said, nobody told me there'd be days like these. The days are the present evil aeon or age, Galatians 1.4, Titus 2.12. But the same age is the messianic age because the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning. He is Lord of the living and the dead. He is the Lord of the, the living and the dead, the living who have been made alive with him through regeneration, the dead, whether the dead are in sins or in graves, he is the Lord because he both died and was revived or came back from death in a glorious resurrection in order to become Lord of the living and the dead, Romans fourteen nine. So then, what we have is in this present age, we have two things going on. It's an evil aeon, but at the same time, it's a messianic aeon. God has invaded this present evil age in the person of his son and then also in the person of the spirit. Two divine missions, as we're learning, mostly on Sundays. But in this present evil aeon slash messianic aeon, Those who are in Christ are comprised of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me is a way of saying it. They are the body of Christ, and as such they are Christ corporate. Not divine as he is and human, but humanly incorporated into him, they are Christ incorporate. Incorporated. They are his representation on earth. Though he alone is the head in the body, we are the body. He alone is the head. Now, this is new doctrine, so it's coming gradually. It's kind of a rough-cut diamond. Kefale, head. This word, kefale, finds its way into one of our key passages in Ephesians 1.10, Describing what 1 Corinthians 15.28 is also describing. And that is ana, then the word kephaliao. Ana kephaliao. See, right in the heart of that, you have the head. So ana kephaliao is the summing up of everything under the head of Christ, who is Christ, under the head who is Christ. The summing up of everything under one head, which is Christ. The summing up of everything. So now the church is that which has been so far summed up 
under the headship of Christ. But God's great intention is that he will summarize tapanta, all of created reality in this, the proportionate universe of proportionate being in all of its times under the headship of Christ. That's why I kind of like the word anakephaliosis as much as I like apocatastasis. It's another A word. So if you put a, made it a noun, it would be anakephaliosis, which is just as fun of a word as apocatastasis from Acts, Acts 3.21. These words start to crop up. And what we're talking about here is God being all in all in 15.28 is the same as anakephaliosis when all things are summed up in Christ who is the head and God is pleased to dwell in Christ then he's pleased to dwell in all that has been summed up in Christ. He's all in all. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what keeps me going. That keeps me living even when life many times gives you many reasons why you don't want to stay here. That's the only reason I have to want to stay here, that far-reaching hope. And that's the hope that gives us stability against all of life's adversities. And don't think you're going to get out of this life without adversities, daily ones. You can almost feel it, and the heat starts coming. And I don't mean weather heat. I mean the heat of the day starts coming. The events start coming. Calls might come. This might come. This news might come. This occurrence might occur. Jesus said sufficient to the day are the, is the evil thereof. Every day has got a portion of it. He knew. He lived in this life. He was speaking as a man in his 30s. He already knew. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. But the good news is sufficient to the day is the grace from God for that adversity. So in the midst of this adversity, to me, the hope of God becoming all in all is the greatest hope I have. I used to, thank God, I have put away childish things. My hope used to reside in a thing called the rapture, which is a cobbled up doctrine that doesn't really have anything to do with the Bible. But now it is God becoming all in all. So the body of Christ right now is humanity or that segment of humanity that are presently recapitulated in Christ. Another word for this, I think it was Irenaeus called this anakephaliosis, a recapitulation, which is pretty good. If you get decapitated, your head gets cut off. So the Latin equivalent of anakephaliosis is something like recapitulation. It's under the headship of Christ. Right now, the body of Christ is a humanity that are presently recapitulated under Christ's headship. The church, therefore, is a prolepsis. I didn't think you'd get an intense theology lesson tonight, did you? Well, I kind of warned you about Thursdays that we might be doing this. A prolepsis. Best way I came to understand this, I think, is from consulting the American Heritage College Dictionary. Prolepsis is an example of prolepsis is the 13 colonies that used to be all of us, that used to be the whole of the United States, 13 colonies. 
now that was but that's a prolepsis of what is now a 330 or 340 million person conglomerate that's a good way of understanding the church is a prolepsis of what will one day be a universal human community in fact a universal community of all being all together in god So the body of Christ is humanity that are presently recapitulated in Christ. If any person is in Christ, Paul said very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.17, there is the new creation. The new creation now consists exclusively of persons in Christ. But that's not the whole of the new creation. It's a prolapsus or a preview. Therefore, the church, and this is what should be written. If I ever wrote a systematic theology, I have this wild desire someday to do that, but that's, I don't know about that because I'm supposed to, I got a reconfirmation today that I'm supposed to stand right here and stay right here and weather what comes. Because you think about, well, is there something else you want me to do? Is there something else you want me to do? You want me to write? You want me to do this? And every once in a while, the Holy Spirit comes around and says very gently, if omnipotence is gentle, you stay where you are until I move you. You stay where you are. Stand where you stand. See, that little space you've got right here, it's about four by four. That's where you stand. That's where you take your stand. You are fully armed with the armor of God. You stand there. And that's the same with all of us. All of us have some function and some place where God wants us to stand. And we don't want to abandon that because we would be abandoning the people that God made to need us for one thing. You don't want to do that. That's just for somebody Maybe, I don't know. I really don't know, but it's probably for somebody. Now, if I were to write a systematic theology under ecclesiology, I would include this information because I haven't seen it in systematic theologies that I've read. The church is a prolepsis or a preview of the day when all of humanity will be the body of Christ. Did you hear that? The day when all of humanity will be the body of Christ, because does it not say that in Christ all will be made alive? Then if in Christ all humanity will be made alive, and we made very strong emphasis on that a couple weeks ago to make you, make you understand that that's exactly what Paul meant, then the whole of humanity is destined to be the corporate body of Christ, and all the patristic theologians that Ilaria Ramelli studied in that fantastic book on Christian apoc- the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, they understood this, whether it was Bardason or Origen or Evagrius or later Gregory Nyssa or Gregory Nazianzus or these, or even Melania. Melania was a theologian of the, of the time in, of Basil and others. She was a wonderful theologian. She believed it, too, that eventually all of humanity will be the body of Christ. The body of Christ right now in this evil age, which is also the beginning of the messianic age, is a humanity that are presently recapitulated in him. The church, therefore, is a prolepsis or a preview of the day when all of humanity will be the body of Christ and when God the Father will be all in all. And all will be in him, 
because all will be in Christ and Christ will be in all. And it's unthinkable to think that the Father won't be in Christ. So it's just as unthinkable for the Father, for a future in which the Father isn't in Christ who is in all things. And so the Father is in all things, and so is the Holy Spirit. It's the triune God throughout all of creation. Now this, to me, ought to be an essential component of ecclesiology in a 21st century Christian systematic theology. In Christ, all will be made alive. Or as Jesus said in John fourteen twenty, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, You are in me, and I am in you. We can know that now as members of the church, but that's going to be known by all humanity in the day when God is all in all. So that day is now for the church. And ultimately, that day that 1 Corinthians 15, 28 forecasts is when all beings, not just all human beings, but all beings will be in Christ, and Christ will be in all beings, all things that have existence. Because don't forget, in 1 Timothy 6.13, when Paul charges Timothy to be a testimony of the gospel, he said, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, to all beings, Panta. He gives life. The same word he used, zoopoeo, for Ephesians 2.5, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, and while you were, you were made alive together with Christ. Made alive, zoopoeo. You were made alive in Christ. You have yet to be made bodily alive with the glorious body of Christ's resurrection. You have yet to be. And so have I yet to be. But because Christ is the first fruits, and in, as we've been reasoning, and this is really a phenomenon of biblical correlation in Romans eleven sixteen, if the first fruits are holy, then so is the whole batch in the meal offering. But when Paul called Christ the first fruits in First Corinthians fifteen twenty, as we've been studying, and fifteen twenty three. The same thing applies. If the first fruits in resurrection is holy, then so is the universal harvest. Whether it's the Perusia division, the Aparche division, or the Telos division of resurrection. Arguably, the Perusia division are those who will have believed in this life, and the Telos division are those who will not have believed in this life. But God happens to be the Savior of all humankind especially of believers, but not exclusively of believers. Christ will comprise all. Now, here's the point. If some of you want to believe that faith is a condition for salvation, then even if you believe that, there are scriptures that say that every person will believe because every person will make a confession of faith that Yahweh is Yeshua. Every tongue will make that confession. And that confession is not a forced confession. That's a free, public 
expression of what's inside. So if even if you disagree with me and believe that there is a condition in the covenant of God toward man, I can demonstrate in the scriptures that we're both on the same page if it comes to universal redemption because they're demonstrations that everyone will believe ultimately. And they'll believe willingly, but God will bring it about. He elicits the faith. Can't, I can just see in some of you your hand, your grip loosening and letting God take this thing. This project of redemption and deliverance. Let him have it. Remember the old saying, let go and let God? Well, in a way, that can pertain. But they're so hard to let go. Now, a lot of things go on practically when you're teaching theology. It's not just academic. You know what's happening right now and happening in the past several years here is that as you get a grasp on this truth, the Lord is getting a grasp on you. And you are loosening your grasp on your own life. If you lose your life, you will find it. And so we are actually allowing the Holy Spirit to allow us to loosen our grip on our own life. And we find it then. I didn't imagine that if I ever let go of my life, that I'd find it. I thought, if I let go for a minute, everything's going to fall apart, including the universe, which I must be holding together. You let go, and all of a sudden you find the sun still comes up the next day without you holding on. Now, the biggest test is when you say, all right, if I let go, Something terrible will happen. And then you let go and something terrible happens. What are you going to do if that happens? You're going to realize that's the biggest test of all. That didn't happen because I let go. That happened anyways. Well, that's, see, that's how I think. I'm sorry. I've confessed last night that I'm out of my mind. So let me return to sensible speech again. God gives life. To all things. Again, I don't know what commercial, probably Geico or something. I don't know. I get sick of commercials. But if you're so-and-so, it's what you do. If, it's, if you're God, it's what you do. You give life to all things. It's what you do. It's what he does. God gives life to all things. He calls non-existent things into existence. If you're God, it's what you do. You call things that aren't into being. This is the God that redeems us. If he can take something that's terribly wrong and make it right, if we don't believe that, then maybe we should see him taking something that doesn't exist at all and bringing it into existence. Can he who calls something that doesn't even exist into existence fix what's terribly wrong in the universe of proportionate being? I think so. It's what he does. God's justice isn't a desire of retribution. It's the viewing and the perspective that everything's gone terribly wrong and I need to set it right, says God. That's justice. He sets right what's terribly wrong. He does it in his omnipotent grace and he does not require or even remotely desire cooperation from the creation gone wrong. 
I'm going to fix creation that's gone terribly wrong, but not until creation helps me. Creation gone so wrong it can't help itself. I'm going to help if it helps me. That's not God. And so we could say he calls non-existent things into existence in Romans 4.17. We can say he raises the dead. That's what he does. The day that I came into the kingdom of God was the day that he raised me out of death into life. Not bodily raised me. That's coming. But God does that. I look back, January 21st, 23rd, make that, 1972, in a dorm room at the University of Vermont, surrounded by atheistic professors and friends that just didn't care about anything. God made me alive in Christ while I was dead in sins. Now, it took me 40 or 50 years to catch up with what that meant, <laughs> but that means I still am. He justifies the ungodly. It's another thing God does. God justifies the ungodly. In fact, that's the only kind of human being that he justifies. So if you're pious and self-righteous, you've got a problem. So he sets gloriously right what has gone terribly wrong. If you're God, it's what you do. If you're God, he cares for you. He cares for you. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. It's what he does. It's what God does. He cares for you. If you go through the worst kind of devastating persecution, if believers go through torture and death, God is with them throughout. God takes them to be with himself into a glorious future that can't even be imagined on this side. He never leaves us. And he who has not spared his son, but has freely given him over for us all, for us all, how shall he not with him give us all things? Romans 8.32. We're dealing in these messages with the unchained gospel, the gospel unchained. As Paul said from prison, I am in prison, but the word of God is not chained. Second Timothy 2.9. We're dealing with the theme of this year, the unchained gospel. The good news of an entirely divine act of cosmic deliverance which does not enlist the help or even the cooperation of the creature gone wrong, but which does enlist the world, what the world considers unserviceable material. You all, me, Paul, Saul, not many mighty of you, not many mighty have been called, not many noble, not many intelligentsia, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty six. So I'll say that again. We're dealing in these messages with the unchained gospel, the good news of an entirely divine act 
of cosmic deliverance, which does not enlist the help or cooperation of the creature gone wrong, but which does enlist what the world considers unserviceable material to make this gospel known and even to become a living epistle of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God in this second divine mission of the Holy Spirit. He is the ink that writes an epistle of Christ out of you. 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Who's sufficient for this, Paul said? Our sufficiency is from God. Our competence is from God. So maybe I ought to say that sentence one more time because it might be the last time I say it until it gets into print. We are dealing in these messages with the unchained gospel, the good news of an entirely divine act of cosmic deliverance, which does not enlist the help or cooperation of the creature gone wrong, including human beings gone wrong, but which does enlist what the world considers unserviceable material to make this gospel known. And to be living epistles of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God during the course of this second divine mission. Now, regarding this gospel, and I pulled in some of my friends today. I get by with a little help from my friends. I didn't say hi. I said bye. I get by. I get by. A little help from my friends. J. Lewis Martin said this. It's Ricky's twin, but he spelled his name wrong, Martin. Listen carefully to what Martin said, because he's the guy that set the tone for the future of theology. He said this, God's good news is fundamentally apocalyptic. In the sense of being the event of God's stepping powerfully on the scene from beyond. That's a profound statement, and it really kind of captures what I've been trying to say all these years. God's good news is fundamentally apocalyptic in the sense of being the event of God stepping powerfully on the scene from beyond. So that gives me a definition for what is apocalypse. What is apocalyptic? God's stepping in powerfully on the scene from beyond it. But he continues and helps in more, even more help. I, I don't even remember sometimes how the Holy Spirit recalls all these passages to me because they're sprawled out all over my desk, written with illegible handwriting. They're everywhere. Then I go on, what page? And photographic memory kicks in. I think it was page 158 on top, and, and, they, and they all came together. But he continues and says this. Thus Paul does not say that his mission began with the preaching of a wiser path of life. How much preaching is that today? How many books written by Christians is that today? A wiser path of life. So he says, thus Paul does not say that his mission began with the preaching of a wiser path of life, a better route to happiness, and so on. He does not even say that his task was to preach a non-law gospel in contrast to the law. God called him to preach Christ. The good news being Christ's advent into the world. I like that because it makes me think of verses like faithful is the saying. 
that Christ came into the world to save one class of humanity, sinners. That's just not people who commit sins. That's people who are riddled with sinfulness because they're under the power of sin from which they could never extract themselves. God doesn't say they're doing wrong. Let me get down and destroy them. Let me throw them into hell, into the lake of fire forever and ever. He has compassion as he did through Jonah at Nineveh when he said, do you have a problem, Jonah, with the fact that I save these people wholesale, the whole group of them, who don't even know they're left from the right? From my perspective, these people don't know they're left from the right. It's compassion. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, this thick. So far, it's really good. She wrote about the Italian-born English theological philosopher named Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, who lived from 1033, so now we're going past the patristic era, 1033 to 1109 A.D., And she said of him that, quote, he introduces us to the dimension of the human predicament and the need for an act of deliverance from beyond our sphere of command and control. Boy, that's good. Anselm, like Origen, has taken a lot of heat from the fundamentalist theologians and from liberal theologians and from both sides of the divide. And their reputations are being salvaged by, so far, ladies who are theologians. Once again, Anselm, quote, introduces us to the dimension of the human predicament and the need for an act of deliverance from beyond our sphere of command and control. Then Rutledge says this, and this is why I like her, because she's thinking. She says, such an action is properly called... Apocalyptic. See, people are getting the point here. This is the point. Theology is going in an apocalyptic direction. It's understanding the gospel as an apocalypse. An apocalypse isn't a catastrophe. It's a divine act of deliverance by which God delivers not only humanity, but the universe itself from certain powers like sin, death, corruption, from which The creation could never extract itself. So 1 Corinthians 15, 28, still, this is all part of an exegesis of 1 Corinthians 15. 15, 28 is still the final goal of all God's redemptive plans, as A.T. Robertson put it. And these redemptive plans are nothing other. And I like the way Pastor Brown framed this in several messages. The way you did this was brilliant. His redemptive plans are nothing other than God's intention. His great intention. Found in Isaiah 9.5 in the Septuagint. Found in Ephesians 1.9 and through 11 in Ephesians. Paul's, I think, Paul's first epistle. The first one he wrote. The unchained gospel before he had to deal with a lot of stuff. Those redemptive plans are nothing other than God's intention and unstoppable determination to sum up all things in Christ and then that the triune God be all in all. So if you think about it in the simplest of terms, God builds a house 
with the intention of living in it. He builds a house, something terribly goes wrong with the house, so he repairs the house. Can God who creates something out of nothing fix it when it's gone wrong? Uh, Let me think. And Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the Word, the eternal Word. Nothing ever came into being from non-existence without him. Do you think the one through whom all things came into existence can redeem all things that have gone terribly wrong? Think about it. That's what we would call the logic of redemption. And so, to sum up all things in Christ, God has made Christ to be our redemption, says 1 Corinthians one thirty. God has made Christ to be our redemption, as he has made him to be for us wisdom, righteousness, which is the act of God's deliverance, and sanctification. Listen carefully to this because it's going to pop in future messages. I have a feeling anyways that it will. If the first fruits is holy and the fulfilled condition, it is. Then so is the whole batch. He's referring to Numbers 15 there in the meal offering. But again, the first fruits is used as the first wave of a universal harvest. If the first fruits is holy and the first fruits is Christ, then the universal harvest is holy because Christ has been made to be our holiness, our sanctification. Cosman. Still reading a bit of that every day. Five or six pages takes me about two hours. Cosman in Romans eight, Romans nineteen eighty. I simply call it Romans eighty. His commentary on Romans. He was Moltmann's teacher, one of them, one of his teachers, writing on Romans eleven thirty three to thirty six, which is Paul's ecstatic doxology after realizing that God is going to have mercy upon all. Cosman wrote this. As in 118 and following of Romans, as in Romans 512 and following, as in Romans 819 and following, universal redemption is in view, says Ernst Kosman, the German scholar, with Christology at its center. Yes, indeed. Finally, he says, the acclamation. As in Revelation, the acclamation that to him, through him, and back to him, or from him, through him, to him, are all things tapanta. That's universal restoration. He says, in the praise of the community, or he says, finally, the acclamation, that is of Romans eleven thirty three to 36, as in Revelation, which we've seen in Revelation five thirteen and Philippians two eleven, when every knee bows, every tongue confesses, etc. He says... The acclamation finally takes up the cosmic veneration. It takes up a universal worship. And then I put this all in caps, so think in caps. Put on your thinking caps and think in caps. In the praise of the community, he says, that's the church. In the praise of the community, there is already uttered that which one day the whole world will have to confess and will have to confirm with its amen. 
The only thing I don't like about that is the have to. It's just going to be. It will be. Stauffer, thank you for being polite and not crying out. Where's 738? Here it is. Number 738. It's a note in Stauffer's New Testament theology. And to show you how many footnotes, it's number 738 footnote. On page 319 of Ethelbert Stauffer's New Testament theology. And here's only a little piece of it that I'm going to give to you tonight. Because I'd feel bad if I didn't. Because I said I would. This will do two things. It will help us to carry on with our subject, but it will also introduce a segment of Better Call Paul called the Pastorals, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Where do they fit in? I think they fit in in a remarkable way that has not been up to now really seen or grasped as part of the canon. Here's Stauffer, note 738, page 319. He says, quote, The idea of a universal salvation did not die out even among Paul's disciples. The author of 1 Timothy 2.1 and following directly connects the motif of intercession in Romans 9.3 when Paul made intercession with the universal salvation in Romans 11.36. And so provides us with an authoritative testimony as to the earliest exegesis of Romans 9 through 11. He perceived 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4 as an exegesis, really 1 to 6, as an exegesis or a summary of Romans 9 through 11. That's going to help us immensely. Then he goes on to say, he exhorts to intercession for all men, all humankind. The pathos or pathos of such intercession is, however, rooted in the conviction Christ has given his life a ransom, not only antipolon, and he uses the same verse we used to use, Mark 10, 45, my life is a ransom, antipolon, for many. But huper panton, huper panton, panton, for all. So Hebrews 2, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 6, theos, pantos, anthropos, Thele Sothene, he says, which is, and then he quotes the Odes of Solomon in support of that, which is not a biblical canonical book. He goes on to say, our text says God wills. He's referring to 1 Timothy 2.4. God wills all men, all humans to be saved and come to the knowledge of the capital T truth embodied in Jesus. He says, our God says, our text says God wills, not merely God would like, The word is thele, T-H-E-L-E-I. The word is thele. You don't dot I's in Greek. I keep forgetting that. They don't have dots on their eyes. So what a pathetically illiterate people. They don't dot their I's. Now, (laughs) it says thele. Just kidding if you're Greek. Greek food is my favorite food. I love Greek food. I want some Greek food now. I want some baklava. Bring it to me, Jim, now. Go out in the car and get some. No, never mind. Now, the word thele, and it means, listen, irresistible will of God, which is stronger than anything we could mean by world, and which has power over every creaturely will, and so carries its own guarantee of fulfillment within itself. The counterpart of this is bulestai, which is 
God's resolution in 2 Peter 3.9. In this sense, God is called in 1 Timothy 4.10, the Savior of all men, especially, and of course we know that means all humankind, especially of them that now believe, but not only of believers. Then he quotes 1 Timothy 6.13, God gives life to all beings. In this sense, the numerous predestinatorum, which is the number of predestinated, in Hebrews 12.23, are thought of as the church of the firstborn. In James 1.18, as the firstfruits of his creatures. And then this is the main thing I wanted to get tonight from 7.38. He says, in fine, or by fine-tuning, the church of God is not the end. But the beginning, the beginning of a renewal and redemption of all mankind. That's what I think ought to be the essential element of a 21st century ecclesiology in a 21st century systematic theology, which needs to be written. Maybe one of you can do it. Ralph, you can do it. Start tonight. (laughs) Get your typewriter and. So in closing, you put that little sentence by Stauffer, the church of God is not, you know what this does? It humbles me. I used to think, I'm a member of the church, I'm part of the elect, and you're not. And, well, not exactly that way, but that's kind of what you think. It's, It's what I call elective elitist arrogance. I just started calling it that today. And Paul rails against that. In fact, he says, I'm using my apostolic mission, my grace to tell you to stop being arrogant in Romans 12.3. And it's all about that elective elitist arrogance. So, in fact, he's dealing against elective elitist arrogance all the way from Romans 11.17 through Romans 12.3. So in closing, you don't have to get home and see the pirates. They already won today. Oop. Did you tape it? Oh, no, sorry. They won four to two. I won't give anything else away. Rivero closed. Pitching over 100 miles an hour each time. Sorry. Again, with that sentence, that the church is not the end but the beginning, the beginning of a renewal of redemption of all mankind, does that not gel perfectly or congeal or is not that congenial congenial with Cosman's statement in the praise of the community the church there is already uttered that which one day the whole world will confess and will affirm with its amen I'm not going to say have to there because the condition is not that we have to it's that we will be glad to I used to say that to my grandsons if they were not allowed to say no in the iron house when they were little. So when I asked them to do something, I said, this is how you answer. I'd be delighted to do that, Papa. Yes, Papa, that would be delightful. So I'd say, well, help Nana to put the dishes back. And they'd say, okay, Papa, that would be delightful. I actually got them to do that, but they, did it. they didn't do it under pressure. It was, it was really amazing. It was the image of God working in me to make children willing, cheerfully willing, and that's what God's going to do for all of us. Now, in the praise of the community, we have a preview of what's going to be said by all of humankind. 
don't you think that this ought to be an essential component of ecclesiology in a 21st century Christian systematic theology? And this in turn agrees with Wolfhart Pannenberg's. See, it's worth reading all these guys. At least I did. His notion of the church as a provisional and proleptic community. This doctrine ought to have a humbling effect. And I'll close with some cheerful words. This doctrine ought to have a humbling effect on believers and should eradicate any elective-elitist arrogance. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone supposes himself to be something, and then I would put in for our exegesis, because he has been elected by God, when he is nothing, and I put in brackets, that is, he had nothing to do with it. Then he's deluding himself. Let me say that again, without the brackets. For if anyone supposes himself to be something, when he's nothing, he's deceiving himself. So let's put it this way in terms of a rebuke of elective elitist arrogance. If anyone supposes himself to be something, because he's been elected by God, apparently because of some capacity in him that can be redeemed, He has a redeemable capacity. Nobody's got a redeemable capacity. If someone supposes himself to be something, okay, ladies, let's make it her. If anyone supposes herself to be something because she has been elected by God, when she is nothing, that is, she had nothing to do with it, she's deluding herself. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Make sure that if you stand, you're standing in grace and not standing in something about you. That's all. That's, all. That's pretty good. Let's stop there. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to study your word. And we pray that you'll at least show all of us as students the profit there is in studying a wide range of theologians and theology as well as, of course, primarily the scriptures themselves, word by word, line upon line. Because through this study radiates the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines ultimately from the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our whole goal is to portray through the apostles' The Apostle Paul's epistles, as we have tried to portray in Revelation, the Apocalypse of John, a portrait, a painting, a picture, and a vision of Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, in his universally saving significance, and to portray the universal impact of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension his enthronement. Bring this about, Father, because only you can, and we ask it not on our own merits, because we have none, but on the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ.